Hello, and welcome to the Dockyard Elixir Roundtable. Uh, I'm Nathan Long. I'm a senior software engineer here at Dockyard. I'm Andrew Berrien. I'm an Elixir engineer here at Dockyard. I'm Mike Benz. I'm a staff software engineer here at Dockyard. Hey, I'm Zach Liss. I'm a senior software engineer at Dockyard. And this is Rockwell Schrock, also a senior software Elixir engineer at Dockyard. Awesome. Uh, so. We have a couple of things we want to talk about today. Um, the first thing is a library that uh, Mike has just created that's pretty early stage right now, um, but related to another project that we've got ongoing. So the Beacon CMS is the ongoing project, and this new library is called Safe Code. So do you want to tell us about that, Mike? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so like you said, this is a very early stage um, kind of proof of concept or, or uh, trying to see if if this is even even possible but the idea is that in in uh, beacon one of the in the beacon cms which is a live view cms we've been working on for the past uh, month or so um it, we allow users to create their own templates uh and load those into into beacon and so obviously the, there's a big question there on uh, what's what what's safe to load into the running uh, uh, theme? Because obviously, if you can if you can load any code, you can do anything you want from that that machine. So um, most likely, we'll probably end up going with some sort of a DSL where we we uh, we give specific things that people can can uh, type in and uh, protect it that way. But um, Either as a part of that, or instead of that, is the idea of, of just analyzing the code statically. Say, hey, is this is this stuff safe, right? You know, because um, you want to if you want to uh, add one plus one and then you know percent equals throw that in the template, like that's safe, right? Um, but you know, system.cmd, you can do pretty much anything you want, uh, all sorts of bad things. And so uh, the idea is, well, can we can we look at code and say, hey, is this actually safe to run um, and to load as a template? Because you could theoretically, in a in a uh, live view template, you could say, you know, percent equals system dot cmd rm rf, and you know, it's it's over, right? Uh, so so yeah, so the it's just like I said, it's a proof of concept. Um, it's a, uh, approaching it from a kind of a, a whitelist idea where yeah, um, you know, there's uh, the basic uh, building blocks are, are allowed. You know, like for loops and you know all uh, uh, all sorts of the, the basic uh, elixir stuff that is that it that in and of itself can't um, aren't, isn't dangerous. Um, and then you know, obviously, so like uh, enum.map is not dangerous, but if you if enum.map has you know system dot whatever as the function. Um, that's that's bad. So uh, yeah, so it's just just uh, right now it's got a couple of functions for Elixir and a couple of functions for Phoenix that it that it allows, and then it allows you to define your own set of allowed functions, which Beacon's taking advantage of that because Beacon has its own DSL where there's a couple of functions you call direct uh, that it it then needs to whitelist. So yeah, so that's 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 all it is. It's it's a it's a proof concept to test, and we'll. We'll see how it goes. Um, obviously, there's plenty of other ways to um, take down a system other than just statically, you know, calling bad 
uh, functions, but um, we'll take it one one step at a time. Okay. So who are the players? Like, I'm trying to picture who all is involved in this. Like, there's the CMS is deployed to a web host somewhere, right? And then somebody is the administrator of that. Somebody is putting in posts, I guess, like blog posts or whatever. Um, who would be creating templates and who would be setting up with what functions you're allowed to call in those templates? Yeah, I mean, and uh, so that's going to depend on what your project is and who you have work, have, you know, uh, working on it. Um, it. It could be anywhere from, you know, you're the only one doing it and you just want to make sure you don't do something dumb and, you know, or whatever, all the way to, you know, I could imagine like a, um, a multi-tenant hosted solution that um, where anyone along the line could could potentially be a bad actor up and up to the, you know, obviously the, the person that deploys it uh, would be the one you, that would be trusted. But um, so then, yeah, it really depends what the, what the situation is and how you how you would use it. Uh, but yeah, the idea would be that there would be end users, some sort of end user, whether they're uh, administrators or, or um, you know, slightly elevated users on the system that could could define templates or components or whatever. Um, and uh, yeah, so that that's how. Yeah, it depends. Okay, but you're you're envisioning that like if Acme Corp is using this CMS for their blog or whatever. Somebody at Acme Corp can actually can actually say like these functions are allowed. It doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be uh, like built into Beacon that these functions are allowed. Right. Yeah. So so um, you when you call into Save Code, you pa it passes you pass um, any additional uh, validators that you want, and so Beacon's going to pass its own ones for its own DSL, and then Beacon can be configured to well will be uh, in, the in the future be able to be configured to say. Hey, you know, these are the additional format uh, validators. Sorry, that um, to pass into safe code. So that that will be a configuration option on Beacon to say these are these are allowed. Okay, is that kind of stuff set up in like config files, or is it something that there would be a UI for? Great question. <laughs> so <laughs> no, no, yeah, when okay. you say when you say is it it is not because <laughs> there's you know right now, right now there's a there's a behavior. Uh, that's defined in safe code that for a validator that takes the two, the function validator and then a module function validator, um, those two functions, uh, those two callbacks. And so um, if you want to add something, if you wanted to use drop safe code into your stuff, you can um, just implement uh, the behavior in there and uh, whitelist the things that you want to allow. What are some of the technical challenges with this? Because I know you can get, like the AST gives you pretty much everything. And, you know, especially once you expand it out, you can get, you know, once all the macros are expanded uh, and can't be expanded anymore, like you pretty much have everything. And so like, uh, is there something that, are the case you can think of where the AST doesn't? Like there, something could still happen without you knowing it? Maybe like a, uh, I don't know, maybe some other kind of remote code execution method. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, nothing comes to mind on that. Um, to me, there's more. I, I'm looking at 
I'm looking at it more of like, you know, if you alias one module as another module, like now you could alias it as a, you know, alias your malicious version as the safe version or vice versa or whatever. And now, now it's okay to call IO or, or, you know, inspect or whatever, because inspect has now been, or not, well, that's not a bad, that's a bad example, but you know, uh, whatever, whatever the function is, you, if you, if you're able to alias over something that is normally safe. So, so this thoughts there, you know, do we allow, can you even allow alias in that case? Um, and knowing what, what functions actually being what modules actually being called at any any one point? So there's there's all sorts of there's all sorts of things that, that there where this this could turn out to be you know not not uh, not a valid um, approach, but we'll uh, it, poke at it and see. And in general, these are being performed at compile time, basically these checks, right? They're not like runtime checks, right? Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, that'd be the yeah. idea. Because um, with with Beacon. Um, with Beacon, the 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 flow is, and uh, a manager or a administrative user would create a template and load it um, as they're as they're you know designing the templates. And so at that point where we load it into memory, we just you know you just run it through the the uh, the safe code uh, validator. It's it's pretty cool that you have like you have a couple of advantages in Elixir doing this compared to some other languages where you would have to just look at the code basically as a string. Like the fact that you can look at as an, look at it as an AST gives you a lot of power, and also the fact that, as Rockwell was saying, you can do that at compile time. Um, you know that <clears throat> you're not going to be doing a bunch of expensive and iffy kinds of checks every time the page loads or something horrible like that. <laughs> Right. Yeah. No. That'd be. That'd be. That'd be. Um, well. I mean. Although it is. You know. It's Elixir. So it's still. And it's all. It would all be. It's all in memory. Uh, you know, churning through that stuff. So it shouldn't be that bad. But yeah. No. Definitely. It's. Uh, it's nice to have that. Um, yeah. And and the, the approach. The approach is is one. You know. From. I've done a bunch of work on or a bunch of uh, features for Credo, and so that it's it's a similar approach to that of. of Grab the code, pull it in AST, and then just just look for look for certain things in the in the AST. Or actually, I shouldn't call it AST. Uh, in Elixir, we call it. Uh, I found this out last week. In Elixir, we call them quoted strings, not AST. So that that uh, that threw me. That there's a line in the uh, in the in the docs that that's so. They are quoted string. Uh, uh, to me, that it, it's yeah, it's hard to hard to make that change. I'm not sure if I'll be able to. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction because the, the AST I think refers to like the whole thing. I don't know. Well, in in so in 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 Elixir, at least how I read the docs, the idea is that it, that AS the concept of AST as a whole, it, what is called AST in other languages is called quoted strings in Elixir. It's supposed to be so. Okay, so I'm looking at the code, and I see you're using macro prewalk, and you're calling a function you've got called valid node, and yep. then you have you have some like predefined function heads for that that are like if it's a binary, it's fine, right? right. Yeah. And then when you get down to functions, that's when you call out to okay, let's go look at our list of safe functions. Is this, right. this going to be allowed? Yeah, yeah. So there's two there's two layers. There's 
uh, with the the way the AST presents to you, you have direct functions. So like if you call inspect, it shows up one way in the AST. But if you call io.inspect, that's obviously calling a module and a function. So there's there's two checks. There's the callbacks that we allow for custom validators take those two things, a module and a function or a just a function, meaning it's being called right there. Because one of the one of the problems with it, with the AST approach is we we actually don't we are not positive where exactly it's being called just by looking at the AST. Um, so you know if it, it, in it, a call to inspect might be calling kernel inspect, but if you you know if it, there's no way to tell the difference between kernel inspect and you know a local inspect function uh, because it, the AST just says hey it's calling calling inspect. And so again, that kind of gets into the we we can't with, with ASC we're not tracing where exactly the call is going to end up going to. Um, so, but maybe we have to figure out how to do that, or maybe there's another way to approach it that would allow that um, to happen. So, yeah. And so the the so uh, Beacon uh, CMS is one one use for this. One the other thing that I was thinking it might have um, use in is with live books. Um, because one of the, the right now with a live book, you can you you can't really let anyone that you don't trust use your live book server, right? Because they can right off the bat just wipe wipe the server. Um, you kind of have full access to it. So the question is, how do you, you know? I know with uh, um, when I was doing something similar with the was a Jupyter notebooks or whatever it is in Google, you can they have on their site. You can just jump in and, and use theirs. And that's obviously sandbox somehow, um, but uh, yeah. So if we want to get to some sort of that sort of uh, uh, publicly available live book server, um, something like this needs to happen. Uh, whether whether this is the answer or not remains to be seen. But I, I know a developer friend of mine um, does Ruby development in for one of the. Um, sale like shopify or something and their their plugins are in pure ruby but they use some th their own custom i think ruby interpreter or it's got these own their own crazy rules where there's all kinds of limitations of just like basic language constructs right and uh, it's so limiting that you can't even write idiomatic ruby to like solve simple problems you have to do things in weird ways and you're always hitting roadblocks and so uh that's definitely an approach you don't want to <laughs> to take from right, my experience. Exactly. Like you don't want to have yeah. to, to, uh, you know, take things away or limit things artificially if you can help it. Right. Yeah. And, and to, to Nathan's question, it's really who, who will, who in your stack of people that you trust or don't trust, do you trust with each level of it? Right. Yep. Yeah. Who, who, who's going to, who's going to actually be writing the templates or the code and who's going to be then adding the custom validators to say that these things are, are okay. And then, you know, it's just, yeah, lots of, lots of questions, lots to explore. But uh, like I said, that's, that's the point of the project is to start poking. But from a security standpoint, I mean, it's hard to know what all the possible vectors of attack could be. So like you said, it kind of remains to be seen how feasible this is going to be. But the fact that you're starting with an allow list approach, we're like, we're not going to, we're not going to try to tell you all the things that you can't do. We're going to assume that you can only do these things, which is 
the most limiting approach, but it's also the safest approach. Like, uh, yeah. So, so we'll open it up as we see fit. So, I, I had, I was just thinking, oh, what if somebody does it, does apply? You know, like, oh, but you're not right, gonna, yeah. you're not gonna have right. it. Apply. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Apply is not gonna happen. No. Yeah. Um, so, although, although, gone. I mean, the thing is, apply. The problem with apply is, if you're writing an apply function, you, uh, on the, outside of very edge cases, you don't know. You're actually you're passing in a variable, right, and not a not a not a not an actual function. So you could say, oh, well, we'll just check if that function is okay. But that's a if that's a runtime thing, you you know, I mean, I guess technically you could do you could hook it up so that you can validate apply functions, but on the fly. But that'd be that'd be a different level of it. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, apply exactly. I'm like, well, you know, I can't do enum.math because what if they pass the function in? A function and that does something really dangerous well that's okay because the way the ast walks it'll eventually hit that it'll say you know the enum.map is fine but and the, the the fn and the arrow which actually the ast has as separate things those are all fine and all of a sudden system.cmd nope that's you know we're not doing that so but the thing is even you know there's things like recursion like if i i it's safe to call um to call a function but if that function recurses it infinitely, like it's going to, well, Elixir better than others, but it's going to eventually, you know, have a have a really bad day uh, spinning on something, you know, uh, even you know, tail tail recursion or, or not, it could could impact it. So, so but yeah. yeah, that's and that's those are the extra the higher level things that we can at least surface uh by by working through this and, and thinking through it yeah so it remains to be seen how how complete of a solution this is going to be able to be but i think it's really cool that you're even attempting it and it's really cool to think of the of like the advantages that we have in this in this ecosystem for doing something like that and uh it seems like a really interesting approach yeah no it's it was good it's um the, the the stuff that we get to do with our our you know docker days and our bench time and, and that stuff is is uh it's fun to be able to explore and not worry about you know hey maybe the whole thing is is a waste of time but you know or, or maybe the whole thing doesn't doesn't pan out but at least we're you know thinking about it and looking at it and you know digging more into understanding it, uh quoted quoded expressions or however we call them but yeah um yeah, it's good. It's cool to think about like hot hot module loading and how you could, in theory, like compile a module and just load it, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in real time. I don't know if that's what Beacon is doing, but it's fun to think about for some kind of server plugin architecture for like yeah. game or something. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly it, and that's that's that was uh, that's that's Brian's vision for Beacon. That, you know, is that that's kind of the magic that's going on. And it actually just worked worked out well that um, I'd done the work that I did with the Cobalt to Elixir um, in order to test stuff. I had to do hot, hot you know, like code re code loading there. So I actually knew the the part that was was supposed to be the proof of concept uh, for the the month block that I was working on it. Like I had done in like you know twenty minutes because it was just copying code and I and I understood and knew that knew that that you know code dot. Parse or whatever, whatever the function is that that you call, and it's very simple. And just 
um, yeah, that worked out well. So we were able to move the project forward pretty fast. And yeah, there's all sorts of interesting and dangerous and scary things you can do uh, with uh, with loading code. So we're we're a little bit past a question or thought that I had, but I want to ask anyway. In regards to like the uh, like recursion stuff, so that's sort of like um, you know getting at there could be like logical issues instead of just like uh, you're trying to run malicious functions. Um, if we're able to like identify, you know, like making a recursive call or something like that, could we like surface warnings in that case too and say like this is safe to run as far as we can tell, but hey, just so you know, this like might not be chill um, for you to be running in the template. Yeah, no, that's definitely a good idea. The idea of warning, warning for potential things. The question is though, yeah. So, so th that would that would help. Um, that would help a. So there's there's malicious actors, and then there's there's um, how do you say it? there's 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 uh, what foot gun or the users that they might do something that they they're not intending maliciously, but don't realize that this can take it, take the system down. So that would help for that, um, for the, for the users that aren't trying to take the system down, but might accidentally do, do that. So yeah, so that, that idea that there's levels of, of what we need, you know, of users that we want to either say, you know, like we have to shield up, protect from, from you, um, versus this is your system. You can, you can do this if you want, just a heads up. This might, might be, uh, dangerous so that's a, that's a great idea cool anything else you want to add on that subject or we... no just uh, if anyone's anyone's listening to those thoughts um the the repos out there and uh actually I, I just found out about uh github discussion so maybe i'll try to open up a, a discussion uh thing on that uh, however that works cool Using processes for isolation would be interesting too, because like literally, if you just run the code on a separate process, worst case, you just kill the process, right? Right, like, exactly. And it'll yeah. be garbage collected, and you know you can monitor it, and and uh, you don't have to worry about it. Like right. it literally can't take down the whole system. The beam will make sure of that. Right. Yeah, and that's where that's where the you know the, the run there'll be there'll be a potential runtime uh, application of this for that to say. All right, we're yeah, we're spawning this, spinning this off in a safe process that you know obviously we still need to protect against system.cmd because that's not gonna not gonna matter what process you're in if you do that, but for the the uh, overloading and you know whatever um, that sort of stuff, yeah. Cool. Um, well, I had another topic I wanted to to bring up for discussion, um, which is code readability and how that relates to pull request review, uh, kind of a, the whole topic of pull request review. Um, and it's something that I, I, um, I've had kind of good, good and bad experiences with dealing with, uh, and, and this also ties a little bit into our, our discussion of Credo before, because some of the Credo stuff is about trying to keep your code readable. Um, I had an experience a number of years ago working with a team where uh, a teammate who was uh, on paper my equal in rank, I felt like a lot of the PR review I got was kind of talking down to me. And it was a lot of it was very like, 
uh, subjective, like, this is my opinion. I like doing it this way. And I was like, but my way is fine also. <laughs> you know, like, uh, so that kind of put a bad taste in my mouth and made me consider a little bit more um, how I want to not be pushy in a code review. Uh, I've, uh, actually, we have a, a blog post up uh, from a couple of years ago uh, that Pat Collins made. Uh, he's not on the call today, but he wrote a really nice post about reviewing code uh, that we can link in the show notes. And he talked about things like being kind, treating somebody as an equal, um, even if they're more senior or more junior than you, um, asking questions instead of making statements. I think those are all really good suggestions. And, and even like having a clarifying, clarifying conversation if you need to. Um, so that's all. That's all really good. Um, but I think one of the one of the sticking points with code review sometimes is that what's readable is kind of a subjective thing. Like to one person, this seems like readable code, and to another person, it's not. And I mean, you know, at an extreme level, like if you're on a team that's everybody's writing Haskell and everybody's working in like finance, you know, like the stuff that they're doing, if I were to look at that, I'd be like, I have no idea what's happening here, <laughs> you know, but that doesn't mean the code is unreadable. It's not readable to me. And that's the thing is like readability is it depends on the reader. So I think that that thought led me to realize that the real question is, can the people who need to read it, read it? For, so for an open source project, that's anybody that would use it maybe, or, or anybody that might be qualified to contribute to it. But um, for something that you're doing at a, a company, the code is readable if it's readable to your teammates. And that's really the key question. And that lets you narrow it down. Um, so kind of on the flip side, if, you're, if I'm doing PR review, uh, the thing that I need to ask myself is, do I feel like I can understand what I'm reading here in this PR? And can I say I'm going to be able to maintain this code? Um, if I can't understand it, then that's a liability to the team because I, should, I shouldn't say go ahead and merge this because you know that person might leave the company or get hit by a bus or whatever, and then now it's on me, and I'm not going to... What do I do? I don't know how to... I don't understand this code. <laughs> um, and I, I, you know, I can't prove that it's, I can't, you know, understand to my satisfaction that it's correct. And I don't know that I'll be able to work on it. So I think flipping that question around to, can I understand this um, really helps because it, um, it gives me something that I can like, it's more objective in a sense. It's still, it's still my, my perspective on it, but I'm not saying this is unreadable code gavel you know like i hereby judge that it's unreadable and you're wrong it's like no it may be great i just don't understand it um and and that lets me come from a position more of humility like maybe it's just because i'm dumb but one way or the other i need i need to be able to understand it so let's talk about it maybe you can explain it to me maybe after we talk about it there might be some changes you could make some comments you could add some refactoring that would help me so that next time i come back to this when, you know, when I have to make changes to it, I should be able to. Um, so, I, um, you know, can I maintain this? I feel like that's that's the key question, and it also kind of pushes some things down the list that are more stylistic. You know, like if I'm if I'm reading your code, and you're writing Elixir code, and you're writing camel case functions, like okay, that's not pretty, but 
if it's a really descriptive function name, I can understand it and I could maintain it. But if it's, uh, you know, if it's snake cased, but totally obtuse, well, that's technically, you know, that's better style, but it's not more readable. You know, I'm not going to understand what to do with this code if I have to come change it. Um, so any, any thoughts on that sort of way of looking at it? Or anything you want to add? I have a lot of thoughts. I'm not sure I can organize all of them. But one of the things, so I guess, first of all, uh, a lot of what I sort of think about uh, when I was, when I'm hearing you sort of describe this process of like reviewing PRs or, you know, you, you talked about sort of how you felt when reading some of the like communication via text while doing PR reviews with your teammate. And to me, a lot of like the root of this, if like the, even take a step away from like the, the technical aspects of thinking of things is about like, um, you know, having a, like creating a good team space where like you can communicate openly and be collaborative. And when you're saying, when you like, if I ask myself, can I understand this? And the answer is no. I think my next question is, do I feel comfortable sharing that I don't understand this with the rest of the team? Um, and if that answer is also no, then I think there's a larger problem to sort of address the like, how can we create a team space where we can feel comfortable sharing when we don't understand things? And I think that's an, like, an important step to kind of reach a, like a more collaborative tone in PRs where people like feel comfortable saying they don't get stuff. And then, you know, you can have a, a more natural back and forth, I found, uh, once you kind of work towards that point. That's a really great point. Thank you. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just want to say I love that. <laughs> No, that was that was my first bit, and then maybe maybe I'll have more things. We'll see. Yeah, definitely, I'd agree that you know I think many of us have been at places where that's not a safe thing to do, and it's just going to end up in, in an argument or you know whatever back and forth. It's not not helpful. Um, but yeah, you have to have to do whatever you can to uh, work towards that sort of environment that that the people you're working with feel comfortable having those conversations. My own past self is my own worst enemy. And uh, so when I'm writing, when I'm trying to optimize readability, I think about myself coming back to this and, and looking at it and trying to understand what the heck is going on. And I think the process of doing that, like putting yourself in that mind mindset um, also helps, you know, improve readability for everyone else. And, uh, in general, just documenting things more. Not you know, you don't have to comment every single line of code. You don't have to, you know, explain what every single thing is doing if it's if it's obvious, um, or if it's simple enough. But like in general, some amount of documentation is better than none, right? And I again find that the process of writing documentation forces me to think about, okay, what is what is this function actually doing? What is the purpose of this? What's the scope and the context required to understand this thing? And if that becomes too complex, like if the README for whatever you're doing is, you know, a book, uh, that's a sign that that readability could be improved. Readme first development, readme driven development, something like that. I think that's a thing. That's why Credo makes you have module docs, right? <laughs> Credo has a lot of opinions. <laughs> Don't we all? Uh, 
So uh, I, I just to kind of jump in on what you're saying, Zach, about like people feeling like they can say, I don't understand this. Um, I think that's really important. And if you're in a company where people don't feel like they can say that or on a team where they can't, that's just uh, like you're headed for ruin <laughs> because you're going to have somebody, you're going to have people who know more about software in general or more about this part of the system or whatever than others. If you can't have knowledge sharing, then it's just a matter of time before that knowledge disappears. Um, you're going to have, actually, there was, this is, I'm going to make like a really, I can't give you a citation on this, but one time on a podcast, I heard about this thing <laughs> where um, there was, there was a, in different cultures, there's, there's different sort of expectations around when are you allowed to question someone? And you know, as as Americans, we're pretty egalitarian and we're pretty like, uh, for better or for worse, we can be kind of self-centered and like I can, you know, no, like we're we're pretty comfortable generally. Of course, it varies by person, but in cultures with like a really high emphasis on respect, sometimes questioning someone who's your superior can be uh, touchy. And so they they talked about this instance. I think it was a Korean airline where um, this plane actually crashed. And in the flight recordings, they could tell that like the co-pilots were suggesting very gently to the pilot that something might be wrong, but they weren't being clear enough because they were kind of embarrassed. Um, and so I think that's a good metaphor for what can happen in a team, you know, of software as well. Um, if if your junior people don't feel comfortable saying this is crazy or weird or I don't understand this, then maybe something's blinking on the dashboard and they're the only one who sees it, and you're not you're not going to find that out. Um, so I, I think that's a really important thing to cultivate is is a sense of it's okay to question, it's okay to not know stuff. Um, I've I've always made a point uh, since I've had enough experience to be called senior or whatever of like asking dumb questions in public because I want people to know that it's okay to ask dumb questions. <laughs> like, and because I have dumb questions, I really do. So it's fine. Um, I, I think that's an important part of company culture. I think in general, if you have a question, then it's safe to assume that other people have the same question. They just haven't asked it yet. <laughs> That's how I view it. Yeah. I mean, I think from from my perspective, it's taken like some effort on my part over time to kind of try to shift from if I don't understand something, it's because I lack the skills and ability to understand this to if I don't understand something, maybe this is complex and we can talk about why it's complex and kind of um, trusting myself and my abilities. And I, I feel like I wouldn't be surprised if other people have experienced similar things. So it's okay not to get stuff for sure. I also, I was trying to take down a couple notes of just sort of um, we've, over the past maybe year or so on like my, my past two different projects, we've ended up talking about PRs a little bit. And so some sort of things that have popped up I think one is, I think it's, it's important to sort of level set as a team on like how, what types of communication we do over PRs and um, sort of the tone of them. I guess, I think by that, I mean, um, like we've had questions of someone saying like, I, I don't know if a comment is blocking or not for me to merge this thing. Um, sometimes people will just sort of offer ideas uh, and there's some ambiguity of like, are we supposed to have a conversation about this now or are you just kind of tossing out an idea is this a uh, do i need to make changes um 
I think some people, uh, you know, if you actually request changes uh, and like use the GitHub feature to do that, um, you know, some people might take more offense to that than others because it might have certain implications. Others might not. Um, I think there's a lot of sort of it depends with the individuals that are on the team. And it's important just to kind of talk and say like, hey, like uh, we can approve stuff with a suggestion. Uh, you can feel free to merge it as is or take the suggestion if you want. If I really want you to change something, I'll request changes. Not because I hate you. It's just because we're using the feature of the tool that's offered to us and that's all fine. Yeah, I think recently uh, we've had some uncertainty around like uh, people asking, like, is it OK for me to merge my PR or not? Um, and so we, we recently, uh, like just this week, actually had a, like a team discussion where we decided to put together a, a PR template and kind of level set of like, these are the things, this is how we want to try to communicate uh, what a PR is. Um, you know, we have some integrations with Asana and stuff now. So adding some like placeholders for our tasks and various like workflow stuff like that. Um, and then as a team, we like discussed what do we, we made a checklist of like, if this checklist is satisfied, then you can merge your own PR. And if it's not, then do something else. And just sort of uh, defining those things as a team and kind of removing uh, ambiguity, I think it has helped. Um, we're going to be... Uh, kind of checking back in in the next two weeks to see how this goes. We we just started trying this like yesterday or the day before. So um, not many PRs have rolled through with the template yet, but maybe in the next uh, next time around, we can give a little update, see how it's going. Um, but I think always having those conversations and being open to shifting uh, approaches to communication and workflow is, is a good move. Cool. Yeah. And I think uh, anytime you're working in a text medium, as you alluded to earlier, uh, it's a little more challenging than, you know, face-to-face -face communication. It's easier to misinterpret stuff. So uh, all, all the more need to like over communicate. So if you don't have that kind of formal process in place and you're leaving a comment on a PR, you might want to say something like, uh, Hey, I, I really think this needs to be changed. Or you might want to say, uh, I think, what do you think about doing it this way? Up to you, go either way, you know, like, so that it's really clear to them that if they want to just keep it like it is, that's fine. Over-communicating is, is a big deal in text. <laughs> Any other thoughts anybody want to add? Well, I think we can call it a wrap then. So uh, thanks for listening to, watching, uh, or however you experience the round table. <laughs> if you enjoyed the show, Please create an interpretive dance expressing your delight and perform it for your most elderly relative. Bye. Is that homework? <laughs> yes. <laughs>